information that we are sharing today is our own personal experience and does not constitute as medical advice. We do not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suited for you or your condition. Please consult your physician before making any medical decisions. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is sponsored by the Wolf on Chair in Digital Health. We want to give a huge shout out to the inaugural chair holder, Dr. Joseph Cafazo, for sponsoring us. The chair, one of the first of its kind in Canada, is an important step forward in acknowledging the importance of advanced applied research in the discipline of digital health, also supporting a positive change in modernized healthcare delivery. One of the challenges when it comes to treating childhood arthritis is identifying the right children to receive the right treatment at the right time and knowing when to stop the treatment. The overarching goal of the You Can Can Do study, a Canada-Netherlands network in precision medicine in childhood arthritis and rheumatic disease, is to address this gap in treatment approaches and support translational research for all children with juvenile arthritis by using factors unique to the child called biomarkers. We'll talk more about it in our future episodes. Hey guys, I'm Julie, Take a Paychecks blog manager. In our new blog section, we open the discussion for a wide variety of implications of JA. Check it out on the blog page of our website. And if you'd like to start a conversation, submit a blog proposal. We'd love to hear what you have to say and publish your ideas. The link is in our description if you'd like to get involved as soon as possible. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Take a Pain Check. We've had a very exciting few weeks, and to continue that trend, I'm super excited to introduce you this week's guest, Jalasa Martin. She is a master's student at Western University with a Bachelor's of Health Sciences, and not only that, she aims to make a difference for students with disabilities through accessibility initiatives. Hi, Jalissa. We're really happy to have you on today. Could you start off by introducing yourself and your condition? Yeah, so my name is Jalisa, and as Natasha mentioned, I'm a master's student at Western University. Um, I was diagnosed with lupus at the age of 14, and yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. Um, can you kind of start off by giving us a little bit of introduction of what lupus exactly is and how it really affects your body? Yeah, so lupus is an autoimmune disease um, where the immune system attacks itself. And in the case of lupus, it can attack almost any organ system in the body. And in order to be diagnosed with lupus, there are 11 criteria and the patient has to meet four of them. So for myself, it was joint stiffness, um, anti-nuclear antibodies, which is basically a blood test that shows antibodies that fight the nucleus um, in the DNA. I also had auto-inflammatory symptoms, so this was just, again, like joint inflammation and stiffness, and I also had kidney involvement. Um, so yeah, that's the main diagnosis that I have, and as a result of having lupus, I was put on a drug called prednisone, and that drug is a great drug, but it also has many side effects, um, including bone death, um, stomach problems. So as a result of being on prednisone, I've also developed a few stomach conditions, uh, one of them being GERD, which stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. And simply put, um, basically, there's a little hole in between your esophagus and your stomach that stays closed to prevent acid from going up into your esophagus. And in my case, acid just goes up into my esophagus. And another stomach condition that I have is called rapid gastric emptying syndrome. 
So in most cases, the stomach slowly empties into the small intestine after you eat, but in my case, it just empties really fast. So that causes um, symptoms such as nausea and lightheadedness, but yeah. <laughs> That's <sounds> yeah. <laughs> like, like I've been on prednisone too, but I was, I was lucky it was only just like for a month. So what were some of the symptoms that actually led you to your lupus diagnosis? I would say the main symptom was fatigue. I remember being in grade eight and just sleeping a lot. Um, and I would say that the symptom that caused me to go to the doctor is I had a swollen lymph node on my neck. Um, and a lymph node is usually just about this big and it, um, it's a part of the immune system. So I went to my doctor and he didn't really know what was wrong. <clears throat> and then um, after I went to my doctor, he sent me to a pediatrician who did a few tests and he's like okay I'm not exactly sure what's wrong with you but um I think you should go to sick kids so I'm like okay so we went to the sick kids oncology department I didn't even know what oncology was back then um <clears throat> and oncologists usually treat cancer so we went to the department um and they did a few blood tests they're like we don't really know what's wrong we'll give you this cream for your neck and you can come back in two weeks so I drove home from sick kids and did the blood work. And then they called my parents maybe like an hour or so later and they said she needs to come in. Her blood work isn't good. So I like packed a bag. We picked up my mom and we went to the hospital um, and they just did a whole bunch of different tests. Um, and they like brought me into a room and they said, you have leukemia. And I was very shocked and I'm just like, this is crazy. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they said, you know, we have treatment and there's like a 98% survival rate, you'll be fine. So I'm like, okay, but they needed to get um, a bone marrow biopsy to confirm it. So I did the bone marrow biopsy. They came back negative. They're like, okay, we think you have a different type of cancer. And it just kept going through tests and tests over periods of every two weeks and everything kept coming back negative. So that's when they decided to send me to rheumatology and at rheumatology, they did blood work and they did a couple tests um, on my joints and my muscles. And um, that's when I was diagnosed. So the process actually wasn't too long. Like the first time I saw a doctor was May and I got my diagnosis in September. So it was pretty quick. Yeah, it was a lot of ups and downs. But again, to answer your original question, it was mostly just fatigue um, and the swollen lymph nodes. Yeah. How did it feel to not know what was going on at such a young age, right? Like being diagnosed with leukemia and them telling you that you have so many different types of cancer, that can be traumatic. So how was it like going through that at that young of an age? I think the main thing was just confusion. Um, I think it was unique just like hearing you guys talk about your story with arthritis and like having pain. For me, I was just really tired. Like there wasn't anything, you know, immediately wrong, you know, impeding on my daily life. My doctors kind of just like go see a doctor. Um, but at the same time, it was confusing because at first I thought I had cancer and then they're like, you don't have cancer. And then I got the diagnosis of lupus and I didn't really know what that meant or how that would impact my life. And they told me side effects, but I couldn't have in any way anticipated um, how it would impact my life and, and how the drugs would impact my life. So at the age of 13, I was just very, very confused, I would say, um, was how I felt. I 
totally agree with that because I was 13 when I was diagnosed as well. And I felt like at that point, you're so confused. Everyone's kind Mm -hmm. of throwing information at you that you have like no clue about. Like you don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah, It's a lot to definitely take in. So especially for you, because you went through, I know it was only like a short period of time, but Mm -hmm. telling someone that they have cancer and then going to lupus and then just being really like, it's just, it's so much to handle. Um, yeah. I guess my question to you is, as you were 13, obviously your symptoms might have changed or progressed or decreased throughout a whole span um, of like, obviously like right now to before. So how have your symptoms changed either in a better way or a worse way from 13 to right now? I would say, unfortunately, my symptoms have gotten worse. Um, I'm definitely a lot more fatigued. I definitely feel a lot more muscle pain. As I mentioned earlier, there's now like involvement of my stomach and my intestines. So I would say it's definitely taken a toll on me. And I think the weird thing with lupus is there's a lot of drugs to treat it, but like none of these drugs were explicitly made to treat lupus. So in some cases, you know, I'll be having a flare and you can only do so much about that or, you know, it won't show up in my blood work. So I think with lupus, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. And And the drugs do help, you know, with blood tests and inflammation levels, but at the end of the day, sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to feeling better physically. So I would say, unfortunately, I have felt worse. I do also think my symptoms are linked to stress, like during exams or if I'm just experiencing something really stressful, I do find that, you know, my joints will flare up or, um, I'll just experience more symptoms. So I definitely think it's linked to that. And just looking at the transitions in my life, which in most cases have been like school. So transitioning to like university or my master's, those were the times where my disease would flare up the most. I I agree. My disease, like I'm like that too. It flares up when I'm super stressed or anxious about doing something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, like it's really hard to fix it. You know, medication. I remember when I was younger, I was like in a lot of shoulder pain and I made my mom take me to the emergency room and all they did was give me like an Advil three shot and it did nothing. Nothing. I was like never going to the hospital again. Like they don't do anything. I'll just live through it in my bed. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, like I, I have had like major flares, but most of the time, like you mentioned, like I just deal with it at home. I remember one flare I had like almost every joint was hurting, like my shoulders, my wrists, my elbows, my knees, my hips. I'm like, okay, I need to go to the ER. Like hopefully they can give me something. And unfortunately the ER that I went to, like they just didn't have a rheumatology department. So there were just like no rheumatologists on staff. And I'm like, oh no, like, what are they gonna do? And she's just like, yeah, you should just go see a rheumatologist and just take 40 milligrams of prednisone. We can't help you. And I feel like that's the rough thing because it's like, you know we're in pain sometimes we don't have great pain management and a lot of the time there's just nothing that we can do about it but lift through it which I think is really tough and you're supposed to help us yeah (laughs) I know (laughs) It's, it's rough I really 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 think that sometimes you are on different medications and you just feel like maybe it's not working maybe like oh like you're still having those flares like why am I on this like and I, it's just, it's a lot to handle for sure. Um, and you did mention some other, I guess, you, like stomach issues that you've developed from 
lupus per se and the medication that you were on. So how do you kind of navigate with that? Or like, um, do you use any external medications on top of that to help those stomach problems um, or any other treatments or anything like that? What do you use? I would say, um, like I mentioned earlier, the main problems are just like chronic pain with my knees um, and my stomach problems. I wouldn't say my medications, like I don't use them on an as needed basis. It's kind of just like a regimen that I take every day and see what happens. Um, so yeah, so I have like lupus medications, which includes prednisone and uh, this drug called hydroxychloroquine, which I know has been popular in light of COVID. It's an anti-malarial. And I also take a drug called azathioprine. And these are all just like immunosuppressants that just help with the auto-inflammatory response in lupus. And then in terms of my stomach problems, I take a lot of um, drugs that just like reduce the acid in my stomach. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. <laughs> and for my chronic pain, I take a whole bunch of drugs. I, when I was uh, still at Sick Kids, I went to the chronic pain clinic and they tried a, a whole bunch of different drugs and I'm still on them today. So I'm on um, a drug called diclofenac, which is in the same family as Advil and just helps with like general pain. I take Tylenol and I also take a drug called Predabolin, which is also known as Lyrica and it helps with nerve pain. So I do take many drugs. I'm kind of in a weird situation where like sometimes they work. If I don't take them, I feel worse. So I do take them, but it's never really completely back to normal. And I've kind of had to accept um, I will be in pain or like I will not feel well. It's kind of just a matter of like how bad I'll feel that day. Have you gotten like really used to the, the regimen kind of thing, doing it every day? Yeah, I've been on most of the drugs since like 14, 15. So it's been quite a while. Like every once in a while, we'll like add a new stomach drug or take one away. But yeah, I've gotten pretty used to it. <laughs> and how has that affected you physically and mentally? I would say the biggest or the drug that's had the biggest impact has been prednisone. And, you know, you said you've been on prednisone. Um, it's caused many problems. Like almost every medication I'm on now is because of a problem caused by prednisone. And I think physically just like the hunger, the weight gain, I think has been the biggest one. Just being like 14 years old and just yeah. getting all this weight. <laughs> and there's nothing you can really do about it. And people are asking me what's happening. Um, so I would say like that's been the biggest impact and just like medication side effects are just rough and when you take so many medications it's hard to really know like which ones are causing side effects and whether a symptom is a medication side effect or not so I would just say like the daily struggle of having to navigate you know what's the problem and when you have like so many different doctors and so many different medications it becomes really hard to to narrow it down because there isn't going to be a blood test, you know, saying, okay, like this is caused by this and this is caused by this. So I would just say like having to navigate, just figuring out, you know, what is causing what and just adjusting it. And in most cases, when I've had to adjust my medication, it's really just weighing the pros and the cons because prednisone also caused uh, bone death in my knee. So I had to get a double knee replacement um, in grade 12 which is very painful and not fun but just having to you know weigh the pros and the cons of yes prednisone will help me but it could also cause this so 
and since you did mention like all those medications you don't really know what works this is why like I'm so interested in personalized medicine and how like I don't know if you find that kind of intriguing that if we could test certain medications on certain genes and kind of figure out like what would work I feel like our lives would be so much better in a way like there's obviously so much behind this topic but I feel like that is something that is so cool and I feel like for patients like us just knowing kind of if your genes will actually like work with this certain medication and like like I don't know I just I just find that cool so do you have any thoughts on any technologies or any things in the healthcare field that could actually improve um, what patients are going through on a daily basis because I know that you have done health sciences and now you're doing your master's but anything um, that you think could really help patients? I've actually never heard of personalized medicine. I think that would be really cool just to see whether something will work before you even take it. it would be so ideal for patients with chronic illness and just uh, really helpful in terms of like disease flares and changing symptoms. So I definitely think that would be really helpful. And something I'm exploring in my thesis that isn't necessarily scientific, but I also think is really helpful is just the concept of patient engagement and just involving patients just in every aspect of the research process, whether it be something, you know, like barriers and facilitators or even just like drug development. I don't really know the technicalities of that, but I think a lot of the times when drugs are made, they're made with the mentality of, okay, like this will help this patient survive. But a lot of cases with rheumatic diseases and chronic illness and chronic pain, we want to do more than survive. We want to thrive and want to live our lives. And I think a lot of times, drug companies don't think about that so I think just involving patients in the process and just like asking them like what do you need how can we help you what are you looking for in this drug could definitely make a difference I think quality of life is often forgotten when Mm -hmm. they're just used to make like they're just used to as you said help people survive and you can't really survive if your quality of life isn't great so (laughs) I think just especially like now that I'm in my master's too, um, being like a full-time student is really hard and, and having to manage, you know, medications and side effects. And I want to live my life and I want to have control of my illness, which has been really hard. But I think like, you know, we deserve to have quality of life too. And we deserve to, to be able to live our lives with at least some sort of freedom. So hopefully medications will change, you know, over the next decade or so that in a way that will consider that. Um, so you did mention some issues in like your kidney per se or like and how like I've seen a lot of people for example Selena Gomez <laughs> that's the only person I could think of like a kidney transplant is obviously the topic um, that a lot of people talk about and how how is this disease actually really affected for example like your kidneys and you can just give us a little bit of background on potentially what could happen or what like has it happened to you? So in the beginning, um, my diagnosis actually came at a great time. My doctor said I was probably like a month away from kidney failure, which was pretty scary, um, especially considering like I didn't really know what the symptoms were of kidney failure and I didn't really have any symptoms. So when I was diagnosed, I was put on a really high dose of prednisone. Um, and they did a kidney biopsy so they just like put me to sleep and took a little sample from my kidney tissue and luckily for me the prednisone just knocked it all out like everything is back to normal and since then I haven't really had any problems with my kidneys which has been great 
Um, I know for a lot of people, you know, if their lupus is diagnosed later or it's more aggressive, like in the case of Selena Gomez, I think she had to go on chemotherapy, which is sometimes a treatment option. So I think in those more aggressive cases, that is when kidney failure comes into play. And I've personally never had to go through a transplant, but I know it can definitely be a lot because there are certain medications that you have to be on for a long period of time um, just because, you know, you have a new organ in your body. So I don't think that's something that I'll really have to go through, hopefully not in the future, just because things have been pretty um, stable for the past 10-ish years. But I would say that's like mostly what I know about the, the kidney transplantation process in terms of like things that I fear could happen to me in the next 10 years, just because I'm still on prednisone. I'm still experiencing bone death in, you know, my femur, which is the long thigh bone in your leg and a bit in my hip. So I think my fear is just what will be the treatment options because they do knee replacements. They don't do femur replacements and they do hip replacements, but to have four artificial joints under the age of 30, I think would be crazy. So I think that's just something uh, that I think about in the future, just in terms of like medication and future procedures. Speaking of transplants, you did have a double knee transplant. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> how was the process that led you to that? And how was the recovery period for it? The process, basically the prednisone, what it does is it um, cu cuts off blood supply to the bone. So in my case, it was my knees and I experienced that maybe like two or three weeks after starting it. Uh, and the official name for it is called the vascular necrosis. So just lack of blood supply leading to death. And that was in 2012. So between 2012 and 2015, the pain kind of got worse and we tried different drugs and different painkillers. And eventually I ended up going to the sick kids pain clinic, which was really great because they take a holistic approach. So, you know, I did uh, psychotherapy, I did physiotherapy, I tried a whole bunch of different pharmacological treatments, but essentially the only way to fix, you know, dead bone is to replace it. Um, so yeah, when I was 16, 17, uh, I ended up being hospitalized for the pain because I couldn't walk and it got really bad. And I got put on a really strong painkiller called oxycodone. And since like during that process, I consulted with an orthopedic surgeon and I got my knees replaced in August of 2015. So right before I started grade 12 and December of 2015, right in the middle of grade 12. Luckily, my school was super accommodating and they were able to help me out. Um, but in terms of preparation, it was mostly just physiotherapy to get my joints ready for the knee surgery. Um, I have had many surgeries before that, so it wasn't something that I was super unfamiliar with. And in terms of the recovery, I ended up going to Toronto Rehab, which was really helpful. So it's just like a lot of physiotherapy. Um, and I would say like, that's the main part of it. And just getting off of the drugs. For me, it was a bit unique because I had been on painkiller so long. I developed this thing called hyperalgesia. So essentially my pain receptors had been suppressed for so long that they started to overfire, causing more pain. So that was, I would say the hardest thing to deal with just figuring out pain meds and coming off of pain meds. And I would say it got rid of the pain 
up to like about 80%, which I think is pretty good. Like I used to be on painkillers every four hours, but it got rid of the pain up to 80%. I still can't do a lot. Um, but I think the fact that I can walk to some extent um, and live my life to some extent is representative of, of some level of success. Uh, but the only thing with the knee replacement is it has to be redone about every 25 years. And every time you go in to do it, there's less bone to work with. So most surgeons will only do it like two or three times. So again, that's another future problem that I kind of just think about is, is how long it will last. But yeah. You are so positive. <laughs> like, this is so much to handle and deal with and think about. I'm just like sitting here just like, wow, that's, that's crazy. So throughout this process, you might have kind of felt alone, I'm assuming, like, um, because there's a lot of people that probably don't understand how you feel on a daily basis and in terms of just not feeling like you're having so much support um did you end up joining any organizations throughout this process where you felt as though you were getting any support or and how did you kind of get involved in these organizations if you did get um involved with them I just want to preface by saying like a lot of this happened a long time ago. During it, I was not very positive. There were many tears. It was very isolating. Um, but just looking back, I did receive a lot of support from my family. I was able to join a support group of patients with chronic pain at Sick Kids, which is really helpful. And I connected with Lucas Ontario pretty early on in the process. Um, and they had a lot of resources, a lot of videos. They would have like yearly walks, which was really great because I got to meet people with lupus. So I would say that's definitely where I've gotten my main support. And then just have a lot of great resources um, and informational resources just for patients to be really educated, which has been great. That's so good. Like I know Trish and I, we really always felt alone at first and then when mm -hmm. we found an organization Cassie and friends like from there we've kind of built our support networks like we can name a bunch of people that have chronic diseases and know that they're there to support us which is so good that I'm so glad that your family was so supportive and people around you were probably very supportive as well like you know going into high school with a double knee replacement and those and all the other issues that kind of stemmed from the prednisone, did you face any bullying or anything being said? Because that's such a tough age to deal with all of these things. Surprisingly, I didn't. I think part of it had to do with, <clears throat> excuse me, the fact that I went from like a middle school of maybe like a class of like 400 grade eights to like a high school of 1500 students. So I think just the fact that I transferred into such a big high school had to do with it. Like my friends had questions and my small group of friends, I told them, um, but luckily, you know, I didn't really receive any bullying or um, have any like questions asked to me when I did get my knee replacement, I had crutches, but for the most part, it was only my circle of friends that had questions and they were really supportive. So um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I faced anything in high school. What about teachers? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I would say my teachers for the most part were supportive. Like when I got diagnosed, I met with my vice principal. 
and we like kind of made a plan on how courses would be and in most cases like if I had a letter from a doctor you know at SickKids they would be like okay cool I did have a few teachers who just like didn't want to give me accommodations or like during my knee replacement um, or like recovering from my knee replacement it was like right near exams so a lot of teachers had to like move their schedule around and some teachers didn't want to do that so I would say most of them were supportive but for the ones who weren't they just like didn't see why I needed extra time or they're just like well you don't look sick um so I would say like in terms of high school I would say the teachers are probably the hardest part in terms of just navigating and I think like no one should have to prove that they're that they're feeling sick but like especially being in high school and just dealing with you know the symptoms and the medication and like everything you go through and then on top of that you have to prove that you need accommodations which I think is crazy but and the university process because I just like started talking to like accessibility services and like whatever you don't have to prove your condition to most of your teachers like they give you well the university that I'm going to they give you a letter and I find that so surprising that high school literally made my life like crazy because I had to kept telling like I had to go on about it and tell my teachers like I have this disease maybe you can't see it but I have it right and I feel like I don't know if you felt that the university process was easier in terms of getting accommodations like I haven't been in university but I'm going through like getting these accommodations has it been easier for you because I've heard that um a lot of the times you don't have to prove what you have um I would say it's been easier in some aspects like you mentioned for my school as well like you just submit your documentation and they send a note out to all the teachers and the teachers basically have to give you accommodations which is pretty nice um I when I was an undergrad I got accommodations for exams so things like extra time which was nice I would say the most difficult part was when I had flares because the way that my school works is they wanted documentation with exact date so like if I had a flare on like December 10th and I only had a note saying November 20th they wouldn't accept it like even though I had a chronic condition and even though I told them that they wouldn't accept it so in the beginning it was a process of like getting my doctor to write a note and and explaining to them like yes I have a chronic illness and figuring all of that out but luckily for me like once I submitted it in the beginning when I first got here in 2016 the documentation has been consistent so I would say that's definitely made it a lot easier and in most cases like I think the most I've had to do is just email my profs being like they approve this accommodation when can you reschedule it and the profs are pretty understanding so I would say that part's been a lot easier in terms of grad school it's a bit different because there's usually not exams in grad school it's usually just like courses in your thesis so that's been a bit more difficult just in terms of getting accommodations, but I would say the undergrad process is definitely a lot easier. So throughout all of this, throughout high school, throughout everything you face, how did you really come about advocating for yourself? I think I started, I wouldn't necessarily call it advocating when I first started, I would just like share stuff on Instagram and Facebook. So that was kind of like my little way of advocating. And then in terms of university, when I first came to university, we had orientation week. 
Um, and that just involved a lot of walking and I did not anticipate it. So I was just in a lot of pain and I didn't even live far from campus. Like I was on res, but the way that my res building was, it was kind of like down a hill. So every time we left, we had to go up a hill. So it was just extremely painful. And I'm just like, this is horrible. So I'm like, something needs to change because, you know, orientation week should be fun. It should be exciting. It should be, you know, you're being introduced to the school and it just wasn't for me. So I looked for resources on campus and our students council had an accessibility committee. So that's how I got involved. And we just basically raised awareness on campus just about you know accessibility initiatives and how my university could become more accessible and like how to be an accessibility advocate. So that's kind of how I started off. And then going into my fourth year of university, um, I started working with the Student Success Center with the Accessibility Mentorship Program. So essentially what we did was pair up first year students with disabilities with upper year students to try and help them transition. And, you know, if they had like any problems with accessible education or didn't know what resources to use, we would just work with them in that aspect. So, yeah. That kind of led you, like your university experience in your first year kind of led you into advocating for other people as well, right? So how did you feel when you did start realizing, oh, like I'm not just advocating for myself anymore? I think it was amazing just to see the changes and that people were willing to listen. Um, and I think it was just really interesting because my school was willing to listen about accessibility. They're willing to listen about the changes and just to see that, you know, disability impacts everyone and accessibility impacts everyone. And, and just the year that I recently graduated, my school conducted um, a report just examining, you know, accessible education and services and accommodations and they made guidelines. And I think it's just really cool to see um, although I do little things that, that there's changes being made and that students coming into university don't have to go through, you know, such a horrible week experience or, you know, they'll receive the supports that they need. And I think for me, the most rewarding thing is just seeing, you know, that people after me have it easier. Yeah, and those little things add up. They make one thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you have a podcast called Accessibility. Can you give us a little information about how this started, um, some topics you talk about, why this is so important to you? So accessibility came through my job as the Accessibility Mentorship Program Coordinator. So essentially it's myself and my co-host and we just explore stories about accessibility and disability on campus. Um, so some of the things we've talked about include like research that's going on with accessibility and sport. We talked about a survey that was done that just examined accessibility um, in light of COVID-19. We've spoken with an occupational therapy student um, who faces a disability and just like her experiences navigating the program. And in our most recent episode, we spoke with a student in the disability studies program. So it's just been really fun to make accessibility accessible and just talk about the experiences of students, whether they have a disability or not, and just raise awareness. Because I think a lot of students, you know, have told me they didn't realize like how the accommodations process worked or they didn't necessarily realize like why people needed accommodations and and just the importance of that. So it's been really cool just getting to like meet new people and explore 
uh, the stories of people on campus. And we'll put all the links to the podcast and Jalissa's Instagram and all her socials in the caption. Whatever. Everybody says down below. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put it in the description so that, you know, you can go and listen to accessibility. Such a cute name. <laughs> so now looking at it, what do you really hope to achieve with accessibility? I think just um, awareness. I think like a lot of times university students just don't think that their peers have disabilities or they just like don't understand the process of accommodations. Like a lot of times they'll be like, why do you need extra time? Or that's not really fair. So I think just like increasing awareness and just emphasizing the fact that accessibility is for everyone. That's something we talk a lot about on our podcast. And a lot of times like certain accommodations um, and certain inventions like elevators, like everyone uses elevators or extra time and like things like that. can be used for everyone and can be beneficial for everyone. And just in, you know, taking a few disability studies courses, we talked about how in everyone's life, they'll either face a disability or know someone who faces a disability. And I think it's just really important to have an open perspective on that and just an open mindset and just be aware of the different types of disabilities um, and how they're accommodated. Uh, in your article, 10 things I wish I knew about accessibility before going to Western, you mentioned um, disability study programs are so important and you believe that almost like everyone needs to have some sort of involvement in learning about disability. So why do you think this is so important and what has Western sort of taught you um, about disability equity and accessibility? I think it's important because in some cases, disability is so stigmatized and there's a lot of misconceptions. And just taking the course really just gave me a new perspective on like the different models surrounding disability, the different types of disability. And I think it's just really something that's that's good to know about because I think in most situations, like wherever you end up in life, you'll come into contact with someone with a disability. And I think the main thing that it did was, yeah, just like decrease the stigma and just give you information to allow you to have more of a holistic perspective. And I think another important thing is just that everyone doesn't experience disability the same. And it's really important to not assume that, you know, if someone experiences this disability, it will be the same as another person who has this disability. And I think just to treat people uniquely and just allow them to to express what they need. So I think that's why it's really important. I agree. I think it's so hard to, like, it's so hard to explain what you're going through to someone and it, you shouldn't have to, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, you are the Accessibility Mentorship Program Coordinator at Western, which we talked about previously. How has that kind of changed your perspective on accessibility? I would say the biggest way it's changed my perspective is just being able to have a firsthand look on the accessibility process from like the administrative level, because I think as a student, you know, we can advocate for certain things and say like, we need this type of accommodation or this type of accommodation. But I would say there's definitely like a spectrum of accommodations and people have like different perspectives, but it was really interesting to see how administration and staff at Western navigated that process. And I think this is something that, will be something that needs to be navigated as we move more into the accessibility sphere is just how do we find that balance between you know 
accommodating students, which obviously should be a human right, but also maintaining the rigor of an academic institution. And I think it's it's sad that it has to be that way sometimes, but an example that I can think of is um, at the end of my third year, I was just very fatigued, had a lot of muscle pain, and I would go to my academic counselor for accommodations a lot. And there kind of came a point where she's like, okay, Jalisa, I can't accommodate you for these four things. And I'm like, why not? And she's like, because like, it's just too many things. Like, when are you going to see your doctor? And I'm like, not until July. And she's like, okay. So it's just like this weird balance of myself as a student having to figure out like, am I sick enough to need this accommodation? And from the staff side of things being like, we can't just give her accommodations for everything. So I think it's just a really tricky balance and being the AMP coordinator, I've been able to see that navigation and that process and kind of give a bit of feedback and input into that process. And being this coordinator, you've obviously written about many different topics, including like accessibility on campus, experiences of students with disabilities, and some of the misconceptions, um, because I did read about that. So what have been some major misconceptions on chronic illness that you feel people actually need to know about that they don't know about? I would say the biggest one is like, you don't look sick, so you don't feel sick. Um, I think it's Our just like- favorite. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's everyone's favorite because, you know, a lot of times if people feel sick, they look it. But in our case, and people who have like chronic illnesses or um, invisible disabilities, a lot of times you'll never see that. So I think it's really important to like never assume how somebody's feeling, um, never assume like whether they're sick or not, never, you know, try to invalidate them based on how they look, but to just ask them and to just be willing to listen um, to what they have to say. So I would say that's the biggest misconception. And then another misconception is just that everybody with the same disability wants to be treated the same or even spoken about the same. Like for example, some people prefer the term people with disabilities. Some people prefer the term disabled people. Some people, you know, may need support in this way and some people may need support in another way. So I think like the overarching theme is just like understand individuality and like everyone's their own person and it's just really really important to just ask people um and just give them that opportunity to share with you giving like giving someone the opportunity to share what they need to keep going mm -hmm. is so important so what would you and our last question what would you say to youth who are going through that confusing stage of not having a proper diagnosis and side note what advice would you give to youth and adults that have been, that are going through those diagnoses and are struggling with lupus, lupus. So for the first question, um, I think it's, it's definitely a hard one, especially for kids, because unfortunately in the medical field, a lot of times like kids aren't listened to or they aren't prioritized. But I would just say, you know, for people who are in the confusing stage of diagnosis, like you know your symptoms, you know, you know, what you're feeling. And I would just like really encourage them to just, you know, stick with the diagnosis process um, and just like work with their parents and work with their, their doctors to find the diagnosis. And I would say once you get it, you may not necessarily like know what it entails, but I think getting a diagnosis and, and having a name for what you're feeling can be so uh, validating um, and relieving when it does happen. 
And in terms of people with lupus, um, I feel like it's, I'm kind of in a stage myself where I'm looking for some encouragement. Like I know I've been through a lot, but I think just especially now, I feel like I've kind of plateaued in terms of, of treatment and, and symptoms. Um, I guess my advice would just be like, talk to your doctor. Luckily I have a great rheumatologist who listens and like is willing to work with me to find new treatment plans. Um, so yeah, I would just say like, talk to your doctor and, and advocate, you know, if you're not feeling well, if your treatment isn't working for you, I would just say that would be um, my main advice and just try your best to find support, like whether it be through organizations like Lupus Ontario, or I know there's like a lot of different, you know, groups on different social media platforms, I would just say like try and find support because it's really, really helpful to have people um, who know what you're going through. Agreed. <laughs> like, it's very helpful. I know, like, I don't think I would have made it this far if I didn't have people that knew exactly what I was going through. And so on that note, I want to thank you for coming on today. Um, we really enjoyed this conversation and I think we learned so much because we haven't really taken a deep dive into lupus or into another disease that kind of is similar to ours, but not the exact same. So I know Natasha and I both learned a lot and kudos to you for pushing through and still doing all of these things. We, I know we can expect to see you go very far and change everyone's quality of life. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to say thank you. Um, I, we will put all of the accessibility and your social media links in the description so everybody can take a minute and go check out that stuff as well. And like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.